Welcome back, everyone. This is Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Please check us out on the web, beforethelightspod.com, and follow us on Instagram at beforethelightspod. Subscribe and share the show, please, with everyone you know. Get a coffee or grab a drink, whatever your flavor is. Tell your family, friends, neighbors, and yes, strangers. It's time for an in-depth conversation with our guest. My guest today is the radio color analyst of game day for the Cleveland Browns. He played 14 seasons for the Browns as an offensive tackle from 1971 to 1984, was named man of the year in 1982, and is inducted into several Hall of Fames. He hails from the same hometown as myself called Streeter, Illinois. Please welcome Doug Deacon to the show. Doug, thanks for being part of the show today. Uh, my pleasure, Tommy. Hey, I'm um, going to kind of go back to memory lane with you here and, and go back to where you are now. But want to start out with, I know there was no youth football back in the day when you, were, when you started. So what is your first memory of football? Well, my first memory was, uh, I guess, trying out for the freshman team. And uh, my family, we'd taken a vacation uh, up in Wisconsin. And uh, I was a, a couple of days late for the first practice. And I came back and they just, you know, gave me a, a number 60-something. And uh, they made me a guard. And uh, so I uh, then I had no idea what I was doing. So one day we were out of practice and uh, – warming up before and somebody was throwing passes and I was catching them and the next thing you know uh, I became a uh, wide receiver and uh, actually you know went through uh, high school being a wide receiver and uh, ended up uh, playing one year at Illinois as a wide receiver and then uh, converting to tight end for my last two years you were only eligible uh, three years back then and then I get drafted by the Browns as an offensive tackle, another position I've never played. So uh, it was, uh, it's been, you know, one of those that uh, you do what you have to do to get the job done. What was it like growing up in Streeter at that time? And for those people, let me, let me back up. Streeter, Illinois is located in the central part of Illinois for our listeners, about an hour and a half south of Chicago and about two hours north of Springfield, Illinois. So kind of located in the middle of small farm town uh, not a lot of activity going on these days there, but there were back in the day. So, I mean, talk to me about growing up there and being recruited uh, to Illinois. Well, the ironic thing is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, there was no youth football, and uh, my dad was six six, and I have an older brother at six eight, and uh, I always thought I was going to be a basketball player. Uh, unfortunately, I don't jump that well, but uh, anyhow, the basketball coach at that time was a little bit of a tyrant a guy named bill davies and he said if he if i wanted to go out for basketball that uh, he wanted me in shape so uh, i either wanted me to go out for uh, football or cross country and i said well that's a pretty easy decision i think <laughs> i'll go out for football and uh, so i ended up going, going out for football and uh, you know growing up in streeter i think you know the one thing uh, you know it's good hard-working people that uh and it's a town that, you know, had some tough people that, uh, you know, weren't afraid to put their dukes up and fight. And uh, sometimes I think, you know, uh, that was one of the main events for a Friday uh, Friday night that uh, there was a group from Ottawa would come over, and uh, which was a town about 16 miles away. And 
the guys from Streeter uh, didn't want them in their territory, and the next thing you know, they'd be duking it out. So uh, you definitely uh, learn toughness growing up in Streeter. I think my father was probably a few of those uh, Friday night fights. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your, your dad was one of the, the best. He, he was a beauty. In fact, uh, one of my best friends, Wally Roach, uh, Wally is probably about uh, – Oh, maybe five ten, a hundred and eighty pounds, but he is—he is the toughest guy I think I know. Him and and then there was a uh, actually a former uh, policeman, uh, Jim Mazak, who uh, you know was a Marine, and uh, you know whenever there was a fight and uh, they called the police, and Maz was the officer that responded. Nobody would do anything; they just walk away because they knew they were going to get their butt kicked by Maz. <laughs> So moving on, we could talk about this all day, but you were a tight end at the University of Illinois. And talk to me about how the teams were like at, at Illinois at the time, because if I recall right, were they not on probation? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, uh, I got recruited to Illinois by Pete Elliott, who was the head coach and at that time. And there was a, a slush fund that uh, came up, and they put the University of Illinois on probation for four years, uh, which was unfortunate and uh, unfair when you consider uh, some of the things that uh, they wrote them up for. One would be uh, one of the players' grandfather died, and you know they uh, they gave uh, the player money to fly home for his grandfather's funeral in uh, California, which is. Uh, you know, I guess against the, the rules, but it's the right thing to do. And uh, so, well, I signed to go there. And then when I, uh, after the slush fund hit, they said, you know, you, you don't have to honor your uh, scholarship. You can go someplace else. And both my parents were Illinois graduates. And I didn't realize, you know, how severe the punishment was going to be. Uh, they ended up having to fire the coach, who was one of the greatest guys that I've ever met, Pete Elliott, uh, 12 12-letter athlete at the University of Michigan and uh, just a superhuman being. And they brought in a guy uh, from uh, Army who had actually recruited me there, Jim Valick. And, uh, you know, when you, you walk into the middle of a – or at the end of a recruiting class, you don't always get the, you know, the, the cream of the crop. And uh, we unfortunately, you know, probably didn't get the cream of the crop. And uh, I think uh, during the course of my four years there, the 30-some scholarships that uh, – were given only four of them uh ended up being there uh surviving all four years uh wow then there was there was one one more who was a walk-on who had never played football ended up earning a scholarship and uh, uh his name was tim mccarthy who was also the secret service agent that took the uh, bullet for president reagan so uh we didn't win a lot of games but we had a lot of good people sounds like it and is it true at the, uh, and i'm not sure if this is factual or not, but I'm sure you'll let me know. There was a coach that was released. And then did you basically lead a charge from that point forward about getting either a coach back or moving on to another coach? Yeah, we were uh, in the midst of my senior season and uh, we're getting ready to play Ohio state, which uh, at that time uh, had been the national champion a couple of years uh, previous. Uh, uh, I was the same age as uh, Rex Kern, uh, Jan White, uh, Jack Tatum, uh, and those guys that were on that Ohio State team. And prior to the game, uh, it was a home game. We we used to stay at a uh, retreat called Allerton uh, the night before the game. And one of the coaches came up to me and he said, uh, Ellis Rainsberger, and he says, hey, you know, the, the, the head coach was Jim Valick. And they said, you know, hey, they fired the coach. Uh, 
you think he ought to tell the team? I said, no, I just saw him in the, in the dining room. He said, no, after the game tomorrow, he's gone. And I said, yeah. So he gave us a speech. It's the first time in the history of the NCAA. He said that a coach had been fired in the middle of the season, and uh, he appreciated how hard we played, and he you know, thanked us. And So we went out and we played Ohio State, and we actually had him down at uh, halftime, and we ended up losing by a couple touchdowns. So after the game, we came in the locker room, and I just asked the coaches if they'd leave and uh, – uh, just the players would be in there, and I said, "Hey guys, you know the coach is not going to be here uh, next week uh, for uh, next week's game. I, I'm not going to be here. Anybody want to go with me?" And everybody raised their hand, and uh, we sent a letter to the athletic board and told them that they'd misjudged the situation, and they we thought that they should, uh, you know, keep the coach, or we weren't going to play the next week. Well. Uh, Fortunately, we were playing over at Purdue for homecoming, and so it was kind of uh, essential that we, our team showed up. <laughs> so they had an emergency meeting of the athletic board, and they uh, uh, rehired him for the remainder of the season. And uh, they, you know, uh, said they'd reevaluate him after the, the season was over. And so we went over and we played Purdue, and we ended up uh, beating them. And so after the game, I gave the coach the game ball and. And the one thing I do remember about it was, you know, uh, getting home and I uh, happened to be had the radio on, and Howard Cosell came on, and he's talking about it. And West Lafayette, Indiana, today they gave a coach a game ball, and he was talking about what we did. And uh, in my athletic career, I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of that, uh, you know, loyalty is something that doesn't exist in sports anymore a lot of times because of, you know, in the pro uh, aspect, you have free agency where. You know, the money dictates where you go, and I think uh, it was a case of uh, our loyalty and uh, dedication, and uh, you know, the guys I, uh, that were on our team. You know, I appreciate them. You know, agreeing to go uh, along with it, and uh, so it, it was. It was one of those things that I guess you always remember. I'll bet it's, it shows you as a leader in the ability to lead your teammates and them actually following. So. You know, it showed uh, some some signs early on of where you were heading in your career. You were drafted in 1971 in the sixth round at the 142nd pick. How did you find out, Doug, that you were chosen, and what was that feeling like? Well, it wasn't quite like today where they have the TV show that tells everybody, and uh, I happened to be at home, and uh, my mother uh, had a bridge club. There would be eight ladies, and they'd, they'd rotate houses, and they'd uh, come over, and they'd play bridge. So phone rings and I get the phone call to the, the new head coach of the Browns it was Nick Scorich who had just replaced Blanton Collier who had retired with the Browns and he says hi uh, is Doug Deacon there I said yeah he says this is Nick Scorich uh, head coach of the Cleveland Browns we just drafted you in the sixth round as an offensive tackle I said offensive tackle I chance I could play tight end he says well we'll see when we get there so I went upstairs to tell my mom and I said, uh, hey, Mom, guess what? I just got drafted by the Browns in the sixth round. And uh, she said, oh, that's great. Three clubs. She made her next bid. <laughs> she just wouldn't let me interrupt the, the, the bridge game. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good story to have. So you were tight end in Illinois. You just brought it up, and then they draft you as an offensive tackle. Was the first time you played offensive tackle then when you got to the Browns? Uh. I would have to say, yeah, for the most part. Uh, although I did play in the uh, blue-gray game in the Senior Bowl, and in the blue-gray game, uh, one of our offensive linemen got hurt, and we were short on offensive linemen, so I was the next biggest body. 
so they just told me to go in and uh, you know play. And, and I, I never played tackle. I didn't even know what you know. I could figure out you know by looking across the line of scrimmage, you know what the who you were supposed to block. But uh, you know it was one of those games that. Uh, in fact, we, uh, our coaching staff was the coaching staff from West Virginia. At, at that time, it was Bobby Bowden. And I think uh, I did uh, earlier in the game, I was, when I was playing tight end before they moved me over, I, I caught the only pass we had in the game, and it was for seven yards. So it was a different type of game back then. I'll bet. So what, I mean, were there some linemen that kind of took you <laughs> underneath their wing and helped you or helped you learn the ropes? I mean, how did you make that transition? Well, I, uh, you know, went to training camp and figured, you know, just make the best of it. And uh, uh, the, the coach, the, the offensive line coach I had was a guy named Ray Prohaska. And uh, for some reason, he saw something in me. And, uh, you know, I would go through the back then training camps were, uh, lasted about a month. And so you got a lot of opportunities to practice. And uh, after practice each day, he'd, he'd line up every defensive end that we had and have them pass rush against me. So uh, not only was I getting the practice, I was getting a, you know an extra practice afterwards of uh, going against you know everybody. So because you know every, each pass rusher does things differently, and I think you know the thing that uh, probably helped me out the most was the fact that I had played basketball in uh, high school because the concept of you know playing defense and um, basketball and staying between your man and uh, the the basket is the same pretty much as you know staying between your man and the quarterback and uh, uh, you know it just it was one of those where about uh, halfway through my rookie season uh, we'd lost a couple games in a row and um, uh, they decided to make the uh, switch uh, at left tackle and Dick Shafraff who had played for the Browns for 13 years was the guy that uh, I ended up replacing uh, and I guess the reason probably uh, more so was a couple weeks earlier we'd played the Atlanta Falcons and uh, our right tackle uh, had got hurt in the game, Bob McKay. And so uh, they, you had three tackles on the team, you know, Shafraff, Bob McKay, and myself. So they, they said, you go in at right tackle. Well, I hadn't played right tackle, and the first guy I get to play against is Claude Humphreys who is now in the Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. and probably the way I played against him helped him get in there. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was it was one of those situations where, you, you know, you, you, you learned on the job. And uh, I did well enough that, you know, like I said, and, you know, next week they made me a starter, and then I started the next uh, 194 uh, Four. consecutive games in a row. That first start, do you have some nerves, or you just go with the flow and ready to go? <laughs> It's kind of, you know, it's one of those that, uh, hey, it's, let's see what you can do. And, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, and at that point in time, I think, you know, the transition from the being a receiver and, you know, having to use your feet. And I think, you know, if you play offensive tackle, you, you know, you get these guys that, you know, can bench press, you know, 500 pounds and things like that. But, you know, the, the, the theory is, you know, to keep the guy from hitting the quarterback or knocking the guy off their positioning so that there's a hole in the running game. And I think, you know, the footwork that's involved in basketball and baseball and the other sports that you play, and I think, you know, those things uh, really, uh, you know, help you know, uh, elevate me to uh, being a better football player and, you know, making the transition. 
You played 194 consecutive starts, like you said, in 203 consecutive games played, which is remarkable, especially you look back these days. That's, um, that's probably something that you're not going to see if ever again. How many times, Doug, during that did injury almost stop that streak? Oh, uh, there was probably one time that uh, it was the closest. But, uh, you know, actually I was uh, at the hospital here in Cleveland with my my brother had a a heart condition. And this guy started talking and we were just going back and forth. And he says, uh, hey, what did you do? And I told him, he says, so I come back the next day, and he said, "Hey, you know, you you hold the record for uh, most consecutive starts by a tackle in, in the uh, NFL." I said, "No, no." I said, "You know, for the Browns, I hold the record." He said, "No, no." And, and so he pulled it up online, and there it was. And I said, "Oh, well, that's pretty good for a guy that's never played tackle in his life." <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but you know, he, he, it's it's one of those. It's you know, it's survival. And I think you know, you go back to when you opened up the question about what you learned in Streeter. Well, you learn toughness, and you know toughness is you know not quitting, and uh, that that was one of the things that uh, you know you just determined. And I think you know every year I went to training camp, I was always you know in in good shape. I, I you know worked out a lot, and you know this was prior to the weightlifting era of the NFL. But uh, about three or four years into it, you know that we started lifting weights, and so I spent a lot of time in the weight room and. Uh, <clears throat> It was just, you know, I think you know, there's, a, there's a lot of things, you know, there's talent that's involved, there's hard work and everything, and sometimes it's timing. And uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, when I came to the Browns, Dick Shafraff was in his 13th year, as I said, and, you know, they were looking for, you know, a set of young legs that uh, could play, and I was just fortunate enough to be at the, in the right place at the right time. Later in your career, you had a team that was nicknamed the Cardiac Kids, you guys always seem to pull it out late in the game. Did that team teach you anything about patience or about staying in the moment? Yeah, I think it's, you know, teaches you about believing that you can, you can do it if you just keep trying. And uh, we were, we were, like you said, we pulled a lot of games out from uh, behind. And, you know, there was you know, a few years prior, we had started out the season 0-9 uh, when Forrest Gregg was the coach there. And, you know, they brought in the guys from Dale Carnegie to talk to us about the power of positive thinking. If you put your mind to it, you can do it. Well, unfortunately, uh, we just didn't have the talent because, uh, you know, when I came there in 71, there was a lot of guys from the 64 championship team uh, that were there. Leroy Kelly, Dick Shafrap, Gene Hickerson, uh, Hickerson and Leroy, obviously in the hall of fame. Gary Collins was the wide receiver. And, um, you know, all of a sudden these guys retired. And uh, when they retired, you know, they had to bring in a new wave and uh, of players. And it, you know, it took a while to build some chemistry and get the right people in place. And uh, one of the guys that uh, was uh, drafted the year after me in like the 16th round was a quarterback by the name of Brian Seip out of San Diego State. And uh, we also had on the team Mike Phipps, who was the third overall pick in the draft, out of Purdue and uh, Mike, you know, had been elevated to the starter. And then all of a sudden, Brian uh, Phipps, you know, got hurt in the game. Brian came in and played very well and they saw something in him. And then in 1980, uh, he was kind of the guy responsible for the cardiac kids because he kept pulling the games out. 
and he ended up winning the uh, MVP of the NFL, and that, that's not a bad accomplishment for a guy that was a 16th-round draft pick. Not at all. You just brought up, you said you guys had started a season at 0-9 and had somebody come in and talk about positivity. How did that season play out? Did it turn around from there? Uh, no, I think uh, we, we ended up winning uh, two or three games, and it, it wasn't you know towards the uh, – end end of the season that we you know we we picked up a couple wins but uh, uh it was you know it was tough i mean because cleveland is a football town and the the people here live and die the fans do with uh, their football team uh you know the basketball team won a championship a few years ago and that's the first championship since the 64 browns team uh won the football championship and uh you know it's it's one of those where you know you're uh, I guess it's a tough year to go through. Uh, and, and unfortunately at Illinois, uh, you know, like I said, we were on probation. And I think in the three years we were eligible to play on the varsity, uh, uh, we went uh, uh, four and 26. So uh, I, I, I'd had wow. a little taste of losing, and it, it's not something you enjoy. No, not at all. Four and 26 and 0 and 9. You know, and, you know, sometimes people get into the realm of they just they start believing you can't win and then it's hard to win after that because you're trying to get over the hump and believe in yourself that you can win and it shows a complete transformation to what you went through and being part of a team that became known as the cardiac kids and believing and pulling out wins at the end yeah and i think you know as you know as an athlete you you go out and every time you go to play you expect to win and you, you hope to win and uh but you know what comes first the the winning or the confidence and i think you know uh you know brian Sype, you know guys had confidence in his ability to you know pull the games out and uh we played as a team and i think you know that's the the, the key everybody was on the same page and you know you know after the games we'd all go out together and, and that the uh, chemistry and team part of it was instrumental of you know we probably played better than uh, uh what our talent level was but we did it because we played as a team you played in four playoff games throughout your career what do you remember about the very first playoff game well, the very first one we played against the baltimore colts that's when uh the colts were in baltimore and uh we lost in, in that one and um the Colts went on to uh, win the world championship that year. Uh, then the next year, uh, we we caught uh, Miami in the uh, playoffs in the first round, and uh, that was the year of their undefeated season. And uh, I think uh, our quarterback in that game, when we uh, was Mike Phipps, and this was kind of the end of it. But he put through like uh, four or five interceptions, so. I think as an offensive lineman, I probably had as many tackles as anybody on defense. (laughs) (laughs) That tells you something about the games right there in a nutshell. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Doug, once your playing days were over, were you already considering the radio side, or how did that transform? Uh, No, I I really – I hadn't really thought about retiring, and, you know, uh, know, it's one of those that I guess – it's that old uh, streeter attitude. You got to tell me the the quit. I ain't quitting. And uh, they finally it got to after my 14th year. We decided that you know it was time to go in a different direction. And one of the guys that was the radio broadcasters at that time had, had told me that uh, 
he asked me, he said, what are you going to do when you get out of football? And I said, I really don't know. He said, well, you ever thought about getting in this business? And I said, I never thought about it. So then uh, it just so happened. And once again, as I said, a lot of uh, you know success or uh, what happens in sports is about timing, much like when I came in and I replaced Dick Shafrap, who played 13 years, and the timing was right. Well, the guy that had asked me about uh, what I was going to do afterwards, who was the play-by-play guy, he decided to go out to California to be uh, the play-by-play guy of the Rams, so it opened up a spot in the radio booth, and uh, so I applied for it and uh, got it, and um, I've been doing it ever since uh, 1984, or 85 was my first year. All right, listeners, I'm going to read off um, all of Doug's Hall of Fame inductees, and I hope I have them all. He was He's in the 1992 Greater Cleveland Sports Hall of Fame, the 2003 Ohio Broadcasters Hall of Fame inductee, 2006 Legends Club with the Cleveland Browns, the 2012 Greater Cleveland Sports Commission Lifetime Achievement Award, and I believe um, there was a recent one in Illinois. Is that correct? Yeah, they, they started an Illinois Valley Hall of Fame, and uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to be in the first class there. That's awesome. Congratulations on all those achievements, too, by the way. I mean, oh, that's, thank you. that's very well. I want to talk to you about now about you have played or broadcasted forty nine over 49 years with the Cleveland Browns organization. How does that feel? Well, it feels good when they're winning. Uh, when they're losing, it's not a lot of fun. It's it, it's work. Uh, you know, uh, when they're winning, it, it's the greatest job in the world. And, you know, fortunately uh, for me, when uh, I retired and got into it right off the get-go, uh, the Kozar Air was here in Cleveland, and they went to the AFC Championship uh, game three times. And, uh, unfortunately, we played Denver uh, three times, but uh, uh, we weren't able to get to the Super Bowl. But, uh you know, it's it's enjoyable, and you know, it's it's a lot uh, less painful than uh, uh, you know playing because you know you you come out of the booth, you're not sore. Uh, <laughs> maybe your your throat's a little uh, weaker, and you know, it gets back to you know what you'd ask a question about you know injuries, uh, and you know during the course of my career, I had uh, two uh, knees that I tore up that had to get operated on after the season. And, you know, a little different today than uh, it was back then because, you know, today they do the arthroscopic surgery. Back then they didn't have come along with that uh, method yet. And, uh, you know, I remember I tore my knee and I went in and they did did a diathogram and they injected the dye and then they'd do an x-ray to see if anything was torn, cartilage was torn. So uh, the trainer said to me, he says, you know, he's, smoking a cigar and he says, hey kid, you got a torn cartilage. This is what you can do. You can get it operated on and you'll be done for the rest of the year. Or for the good of the team, you can tape it up and play. What do you want to do? <laughs> okay, it's pretty obvious. We'll go play. So the next, and that was about halfway through the season. And then the next year, the, the last preseason game, I ended up uh, tearing the cartridge in, cartilage in my other knee and uh, ended up playing the whole season with that and then getting getting it operated on at the end of the season and I see we had a we had a uh, broken thumb twice uh we had a broken hand once we had a stress fracture in our forearm and we were able to navigate through all these injuries and uh play every game what ailments do you have to this day from your playing days 
Uh, right now, I'm about uh, two months in from uh, a hip uh, replacement, and about uh, probably seven years ago, I had both my knees replaced. So uh, durability does have its price tag. Yes, it does. Um, is it safe to say, Doug, that it, is there anyone else that has seen or been a part of more games in Cleveland Brown history than yourself? I've, I always tell people I think I've seen more Browns games live than anybody has ever lived, and uh, uh, I'd have to believe you know that'd be true. I'm just uh, one of those guys been able to hang around and hang on for uh, you know forty some years, and uh, you know it, it's Cleveland's a great sports town, and it's, you know people. Uh, I'm and I've been very fortunate to work with some very talented play-by-play guys because. You know, you're just the Ed McMahon, and the the play-by-play guy is Johnny Carson, and uh, the guy I work with now is a guy named Jim Donovan. He used to do games on NBC, and uh, then you know they lost the the contract where they did uh, you know five or six games during the course of the season, the uh, the AFC, and uh, they only do one now. So he uh, he became the the play-by-play guy when the Browns came back in '99, and We've worked together ever since, and uh, by far, I think if, if you ever, you know, anybody ever took a, and a, did a contest of who who's the best play-by-play guy, Jim Donovan would probably win that award. How many broadcasting partners have you had then throughout your radio career? Well, when I started, uh, there was three of us, and there, there was a guy named Nev Chandler and Jim Mueller, and uh, they kind of alternated between uh, <laughs> with the first year. They, they they alternated in between uh, uh, quarters. One would do the play by play in the first, the other would do in the second. Then they go back to the uh, the other guy, and, and then after the first year of doing that, they decided to uh, uh, make Nev just the play by play guy, and Jim was. Uh, the color guy and I was the analyst, and then the next year it was just uh, Nev and I, and uh, we did that until uh, unfortunately Nev got cancer and, and passed away. And uh, then Casey Coleman, whose father had been a broadcaster here in Cleveland, came in and he did it uh, with me until the Browns, you know, left in '95. Uh, then you know, unfortunately, you know, Casey uh, when he came when we the Browns came back. Jimmy Donovan became the play-by-play guy, and Casey was the sideline guy. And uh, Casey, unfortunately, uh, passed away a couple years after you know started starting doing that. How do you and Jim make it look or not look sound seamless? I mean, is that just from experience, knowing each other throughout the years? How do you guys make that look sound so easy? Well, I think you know you have to know your role and. Uh, Jim is, uh, like I said, one of the best. And Nev Chandler was one of the, the the great play-by-play guys, too, when I worked with Nev. And uh, when Nev passed away, uh, I remember I got a, a letter from somebody, and they, they were talking about Nev. And they, the letter went on to say that you know, the person was blind, and when he lost his eyesight, he lost his interest in uh, uh, football. And uh, he said he happened to turn on the radio, and he he heard Nev do the game, and he says, you know, it's almost like I could see it. And I thought that has got to be the greatest compliment that a, you know a play-by-play guy could ever get. For and, sure. Uh, and you know, and so I guess when 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 you you do the game, you know, you you got to realize that you know not everybody uh, that's listening, you know, played football, and uh, so you're just trying to be their eyes. 
and it, you know it's you know you you you, you got to contain your emotions. Where you know, there's some guys, you know, I listen to some of the other guys that do the games, and some of them will step all over the play-by-play guy. And you know, there's there's just common courtesy and common rules that uh, you you have as a, a broadcaster and. Mine is, you know, hey, my star is Jimmy Donovan. I let him, you know, set it up and describe it for the people at home. And, and I sit there and try to, you know, tell the people, uh, you know, what just happened and why. And, uh, you know, fortunately, you, you have a replay monitor that, you know, helps confirm because the one thing you don't want to do is, you know, tell the people that you saw something that really didn't happen and you, you think you saw it, then you turn to the replay monitor and you get it confirmed. And then by the time the play-by-play guy is, you know, done with you know, his part of it, you can uh, add on your two cents. What is a work week like for prep leading up to calling a game? Well, they uh, uh, after a game on a Sunday, they have a press conference on Monday, and you go to that, and you, know, you kind of listen to the coaches' the discussion of you know what the, the questions. We go back and forth of what happened the week before. Then you uh, Tuesday is an off day. Then Wednesday is the first day to get ready for the next week. So you go back over. Uh, they have the the head coach will talk and then they'll usually have uh, during the course of the week, the defensive coordinator and the offensive coordinator. And then of course you go in the locker room and you try to develop a, you know, friendship or uh, with, you know, some of the players that, you know, that you respect as a player and respect as somebody that can tell you, you know, what's going on. Uh, uh, you know, for many years, Joe Thomas was the left tackle here and Joe was a guy, he's now doing some ESPN work. But Joe is a guy that if you ask him a question, you got a straight answer. And uh, I think the difference is because you've played the game, guys will talk to you about the game knowing that you've played, where the reporter who has not played the game a lot of them, or about all of them, uh, you know, they – they're always kind of suspicious of the questions and things like that. So you can, you know, you get some, uh, you get, I think uh, the straight answers where sometimes you just, you know, get the uh, lip service, you know, if you're a reporter and uh, you know that's kind of important. And then obviously your, your relationship with, you know, the coaches, uh, you know, they'll, they'll tell you what they think too. And uh, I think, you know, having played the game, uh, you, you earn the respect of those that, you know, are playing the day or coaching the day to the point that, uh, they, you know, they trust you more. What do you, what do you think is the biggest hurdle of your job right now? The biggest hurdle of my job? Uh, <laughs> seeing how many more years I can do it. Uh, <laughs> now, it, it, you know, I think, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, the Browns last uh, two or three years have, you know, had horrendous seasons and uh they've gone through a lot of uh people here you know the the turnover and uh as far as the personnel of the players has you know been pretty dramatic but uh you know every two or three years or actually every year almost sometimes it's there's a new coach and uh when you bring in a you know a new coach he brings in his staff and you got to build relationships with those people so, you know to the point that you know they trust you because people you know they'll they'll tell you sometimes you'll you know uh, tell you things and when when they do they'll say you know this is off the record and you honor it and uh if you know on the other side you know sometimes they'll tell you something that you know you 
take that and you take something that you saw and you put two and two together and then you can, you know, kind of say what's going on. And, uh, I think, you know, just, I always, you know, describe, you know, having been an ex player and now being a broadcaster, it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to offend anybody. So you're kind of really walking down the, the, the aisle of an airplane, trying not to touch the seats on the other side, but by the same token, you're trying to be honest and, uh, you know, uh, in what you're seeing. I mean, uh, if somebody, you know, makes a bad play, you got to acknowledge it, uh, you know, by the same token, if a guy makes a great play, you acknowledge it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's it just, uh, uh, I think it, it's frustrating you know, when you, when you see the team lose because you know how hard these guys practice and what they, you know, go through. But, you know, by the same token, you know, having played the game, it's it's not easy to get a win in the NFL. No, it's not. And you touched on, you know, having tough seasons recently, but when did you learn going back that the Browns pretty much had packed up and taken off in the middle of the night? And what were your thoughts on that back in 96? Well, I'd, I'd heard rumblings and, yeah, you just didn't believe it. You never thought that they would. And uh, it was an unfortunate situation that uh, – the, the old stadium, which was, you know, built for like the, I think the 30 some Olympics was had seen its better days. And, uh, it was a baseball football stadium. So, uh, the 50 yard line seats were about 50 yards away, you know, from the, uh, the field because of the bow and uh, construction in the stadium. And, you know, the, 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 they were looking to get a new stadium. And, uh, at the same time though, uh, the Indians, uh, they wanted a new stadium too. And, uh, the Cavaliers were going to move from out in Richfield to downtown. So there was a lot of money being spent on, uh, sports arenas and stadiums. And, uh, unfortunately the Browns were the last team to, uh, you know, get on the list to get, get something new. And, uh, the next thing you know, you know, Modell, who he, he was a millionaire in a billionaire's game, and he just didn't have the finances to make it uh, all work. And the other thing that came along that really hurt him was free agency because, you know, all of a sudden you were going to have to give a guy a $10 million signing bonus, and uh, he was going to the bank to borrow the money. So, you know, he just uh, – the free agency uh, aspect of the game really hurt the, the, the owner that didn't have the mega bucks. And uh, so he he moved the team to Baltimore and uh, – uh, I guess you'd heard it, and, and it wasn't until you know it was announced officially that they were moving that you know you believed it. And uh, that last game in 1995 at the stadium was it was it was a, it was a very sad day because there were so many you know good loyal fans that were heartbroken. And as the game ended, you could hear people taking the seats, ripping the seats out of the stadium to take them home with them. And it had to be, you know, sentimental for you of all the games you played there as well um, from your playing days. Yeah, I mean, and at that point in time, you didn't know if, if they would ever get a, fran- uh, get a franchise back. And uh, the other part of that is it was during the time in which the NFL had uh, gone into expansion. They added Carolina and Jacksonville. Uh, whereas, you know, had they added, you know, Baltimore instead of one of those two teams, you know, maybe the Browns would have survived, but uh, they didn't survive. And, you know, ownership went to Baltimore and they ended up uh, winning a Super Bowl over there. And, uh, you know, the Browns have, you know, really struggled, you know, ever since they've come back. 
What did you do from 96 to 98 when the team was inactive? Uh, did a lot of yard work. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, I'm also a partner in an insurance company with one of my teammates, uh, Robert Jackson. And uh, so, you know, just spent some time over there. And uh, it, it just, it, it was it was a, a long three years. I, I, I also played a lot of golf, <laughs> a lot more golf than I play today. <laughs> well, there you go. Once the Browns came back to playing, is it true that you had to re-audition for your job? Yeah, we, uh, wow. they, they had, a, a, you know, they had about three guys that uh, auditioned for the, uh, doing the color and then three guys uh, doing the play-by-play and how they did the audition was they put a game tape up uh, in a on a TV in the TV and they, they played a thing without the sound and you had to do the uh, the color and the other guy would do the play-by-play and they would tell you what game it was gonna be so uh, uh, being a uh, uh, dull-witted uh, uh, lineman uh, I decided that I would call one of my friends that was coaching in the NFL and say, hey, can you give me a copy of this game? So uh, when the game came around, I kind of knew what was going on before the play happened. There you go. It's, it's called getting the edge. <laughs> That's right, finding the loophole, which you did. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> um, last question, Doug. Advice you can give to somebody young, and energetic and trying to get into the radio field? Well, I think, you know, the, the first thing is, and uh, I, uh, I take my radio partner, Jimmy Donovan, as I mentioned, is you know, one of the best, if not the best in the business. And what he does is he listens to every uh, play-by-play guy that he can. I mean, he, he's He's on the saddle of serious uh, radio listening to uh, Alabama football. He's listening to Notre Dame football. He's, he's always listening to these people and, just, you know, seeing how other people do it. And I think, you know, in doing so, when you listen to somebody else, you, you, you say, well, that sounded good. Or you go, God, I hope I never do that. And, you know, you, you kind of mentally weed in and weed out uh, the things that, you know, you think sound good or, or, or sound appropriate for what's going on. And I was very fortunate uh, after my first year or two, uh, we had a, a radio uh, uh, broadcaster for the Cavaliers by the name of Joe Tate. And Joe was one of the best in the business. And uh, Joe uh, came over to my house and we listened to a tape and he told me what was good and what was bad. And, uh, you know, you know, it's like you think you know it all, but you don't know a damn thing until you you know listen to somebody that really does. And I was fortunate enough that Joe Tate took the time to do that with me. I think in any business, you can always learn from others, and you never ever learn everything about any one business. No, you don't. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the Browns played over in London, and uh, I had a little illness and I couldn't make the trip and so they had somebody fill in for me and uh, I kind of sent him a text on my rules of what to do and uh, my basic rule was don't talk too much Jimmy is the show just you know try to make it so the people understand don't don't over uh, uh, emphasize the X and O's of you know of the philosophy and all this 
you know, you're you're the eyes of the guy because you're on the radio and uh, they can't see what you're you, you know you're seeing, but you can try to describe it for them. And I think you know that's the thing. It just it, the game is about the players that are out on the field. It's not about the broadcasters. You still playing golf these days? Uh, not in this weather yet. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I just had my uh, uh, hip replacement, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. And I was supposed to be going to Florida here uh, at the end of the week, but uh, those have changed because of you know the times we have going on now. Yeah, well, being that you're playing, I know you off the air. We've talked, and you haven't been to Vegas and since the early 80s but if you do get back there's a course here called reflection bay it's a jack nicholas signature design located in the heart of lake las vegas it's a top 100 course that you can play it played host to the wendy's three tour challenge from 1998 to 2007 listeners you can go to reflectionbay.com for more information and doug if you get in town bring your sticks i'll take you out you'll be my guest we'll go play around the golf well, the way I play today, I have to go to Costco and get about two dozen balls for uh, $10 because <laughs> they're going everywhere. That's you all know, right. It's, it's, it, and it's funny, you know, you, you speak of where we grew up and, uh, you know, uh, our golf course there, Anderson Fields, which was uh, nine holes that you right. played twice with different tee box. And you know, the same with the Sweeter Country Club. Uh, uh, you know, it, we grew up where, you, you know, you, you learn from the simplest forms. Uh, and if you hit the ball the wrong way, you hit it in the Anthony's factory. So, uh, <laughs> or on the street. <laughs> yeah, or in the street, yeah. <laughs> Doug, thanks so much for being on the show. I, I greatly appreciate it. Tommy, I, I enjoy it. I, uh, I enjoy your family. Your dad was one of the, the, my best friends in, uh, in Crash. She, she was a super lady, too. <laughs> <laughs> Crash being my aunt. So, yeah, you've always yeah. been uh, – Great with my family and and people. Thank you for and hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to send us an email, go to the website beforethelightspod.com. And for show notes, you'll go to the same place. Please follow us on Instagram at before the lights pod. And for the Patreon section for our members, only $5 per month for five extra minutes of the interview. And if you'd like a shout out, you can find out more how to do that there. Thanks for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>